We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered. When you have dinner with your friends who are writers, you don't ask each other about your work. Right, right, right. You know, right, you right. kind of fool around. Right. And, and then I thought this would be an excuse for me to ask Tony Morrison everything I've ever wanted to ask Tony Morrison. You know? So I said, yes, I'll do it. And there's this one-hour interview. You can find it in the BBC archives. It's one of the most interesting hours that I ever spent. And one of the things she said, which became very useful to me, was she talked about the relationship between her writing and jazz. I said, so much of jazz is improvisational. Yep. Um, I said, so is that a technique that you use? And she said, well, I want to make it look like I do that. Salman Rushdie is one of the great writers of our time. His novels are funny and brilliant and engaging as hell. I love Midnight's Children. I love The Ground Beneath Her Feet. And I love his new novel, Quixote which is a modernization of the Don Quixote story that digs into how TV is ruining modern America and how crazy the country is now. Rusty says we're living in the age of anything can happen, where criminals can become king or even president. Amen to that. I've known Salman for years, and it's always a joy to talk to him. So let's go. It's Salman Rushdie on Torre Show. In my work, I use magic realism as a way of getting at the dynamism and the colorfulness of black culture mm -hmm. and also to try to stand apart from the European tradition. What is it in, in your life that you have seen that makes you say, okay, magical realism is a way of expressing? Yeah, well, I think, you know, what it is is this, that the realist novel came to fruition and became influential at a time when writers and readers kind of essentially had the same picture of the world. Okay. You know, let's say the, the writer could assume that his readers would see the world broadly speaking in the same way that he did. And there was an agreement about the nature of the real, you know, and out of that agreement comes the realist novel. But we don't live in that time anymore. There is no agreement about what the world is like. You know, the world is a very contested space. It's, it's, it's contested politically, nationally, racially, in, in all sorts of ways, you know. And, and so you, there isn't that agreement anymore between the writer and the reader, or there isn't necessarily an agreement about what the world is like. And so that undermines the foundation of realism, you know. And, and you have to find other ways of telling a story. You know, ways of telling a story which 
which assume that there may be many truths. You know, there may be more than one truth, and that some of those truths might be in conflict mm-hmm. with other truths. Mm-hmm. You know, and um, it it sort of comes out of that somehow. Does it give you more power as a writer, or does it? I don't know. I think there was a moment when it that when. The, in the modern manifestation, you know, which really, in a way, started in Latin America, um, right. that moment, the so-called you know, El Boom, as it was called, um, those writers gained enormous attention by the use of these techniques because they seemed to readers to be reflecting the world, to feel like the world that they lived in. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, before I ever went to Latin America. Latin American friends of mine would say the thing about Garcia Marquez is it's not fantasy. And then when I went to Latin America, I discovered that they were they were right. Yeah. That actually it's like that. Right, right, you know? right, right. And and I thought the same about I started out writing mostly about India, South Asia, about India, Pakistan, you know, and and I felt about that part of the world that the reality was so extreme and extraordinary that, in fact, my books felt to me like understatements rather than, <laughs> you know, you know, rather than exaggerations. Mm-hmm. And again, what happened with those early books, you know, like Midnight's Children, when they were published, they were read in the West as magic realists. They were read in India as history books. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and it's that what I'm saying, that people read the world differently. Right. You know, and, and I've always sort of brought with me that knowledge of how the world is read differently, you know, and, and that that allows me, I don't know whether it gives you more power, because I think there's fashion in literature as there is in everything else, you know, and, sure. and that kind of great wave that went from the 60s, 70s, 80s, in which kind of magic realist stuff was very hot, you know, I think it's not really like that now. No. You know, I mean, it's, it's in a way more little C conservative time. Yeah right now. Uh, but this book, I I don't really think of as be quite being in the category of magic realism. I think of it as actually coming from a much, in a way, in some ways, a much older classical tradition. You know, I mean, the one of the things about Don Quixote, which was a starting point for the book, is how incredibly strange and modern it feels. Mm-hmm. You know, Don Quixote and Sancho Panza are characters who know they're in a novel. Right. And who have opinions about the novel that they're in. Right, right, know? right, right. It's very thought, meta, right. And I thought, you know, he thought of this 400 years ago. Right. You know, uh, and and so my book is, it pays its homage to Don Quixote, but it goes on, a, on its own, on a kind of different journey, you know. But so, but it's inspired by this, this old literature, which is the tradition of, the picaresque novel in which you have a, the, you know, the word picaro originally means a kind of rogue or scamp or rascal, you know, um, and the picaro goes on adventures. But in this book, you take this 400-year-old text and you play with that story, but you're commenting on today, yeah, right? And you, I mean, it starts with this sort of meditation on television and obsession with television taking you into a surreal world. Mm-hmm. And as part of your... Is part of your assessment of the modern world that we are being blinded to reality by television? Well, by the junk culture of our time, mm-hmm. you know, of which television is a part. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, in particular, reality television. Um, 
I mean, I, there's television that I like. You know, I've of kind of, I've, I've, what addict, do you like? I'm an addict of Law and Order SVU. <laughs> <laughs> to tell you, I watch much, much, much too much of it. There's a lot of it. There is a lot of it to watch. <laughs> <laughs> is that your favorite show? Probably. Okay. I mean, I could give you other examples. Surely you love Black Mirror. Actually, I haven't watched as much of it as I should. Oh, but that yeah. seems like your kind of show. But it, it's what I've seen of it is, was is terrific. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, you know, I like I like Curb Your Enthusiasm, but I really, really, <laughs> I really, really like Law and Order SVU. Okay, <laughs> okay. Um, but so I mean, I'm not immune to television. I'm talking about junk television. Sure. You know, and and all the other stuff that is ancillary to that, like um, some of the problematic areas of the internet. You know the the enormous untruthfulness of of the internet, and and the kind of bad manneredness of social media and so on. Absolutely. So just sort of taking all that because I was thinking, you know, four hundred years ago, Miguel de Cervantes was taking on what he thought was the junk culture of his time. Mm. You know, and and say how these these awful novels about knights in shining armor rescuing damsels in distress uh, were corroding the minds of people in his time. And so then I thought, well, if I wanted to take something on in that way, what would be my target? You know, and, and, uh, and the book started from that. I mean, you talk about this world of, of anything can happen. Mm. Is that what you feel like we're in? Because you talk I, about like the criminal who could become a king yeah. Check yeah. the king who could be unmasked as a criminal. We've seen that over and over mm-hmm. in recent years. Yeah, I think we. we it's it's, a, it's a, such a strange moment where it's as if all the things that we thought of were like the rules of how things were are broken. They're just gone. Yeah, you know, and and uh, and nobody really knows what the new rules are or might turn into. You know, and so we just. Anything can happen, you know. A reality show star can be president. Hmm. I mean, actually, in the Ukraine, a, a comedian who played who who played presidents in comedy shows on television ran for president and won. Really? Yeah. Oh. So you have so you have somebody who plays a president on TV who ends up being president. So, yeah, how long did this book take you? Two and a bit years. Two. Oh, so you started working on it when Trump was rising. Well, I mean, he was already president. Well, know? he was already yeah, in. Yeah, oh, yeah, so yeah. were you? Were you commenting on this? You know, you will see that the word that doesn't exist in this book is Trump. Right. You know, and I did. Good. I just didn't want him in my damn book. But, but, but he is. The, I mean, is not the essence of Trump well, well, world in the book? Well, yeah. I mean, yes. If one would, I don't want to give him the credit of naming it after him. Sure. You know, but what I think has happened is that there is this breakdown in America and not only in America, this breakdown of an agreement about what the country is and, and, and uh, how to live in it well and badly. You know, there, are, there are radical disagreements about that, um, and which range from decent ones to indecent ones. Mm-hmm. Right? You know, it goes as far as extreme racism and white supremacy and so on. Um, I wanted the book to be funny. Mm-hmm. You know, but I didn't want it to avoid that matter. Mm-hmm. You know, and and I mean the the main characters in the book, Quixote himself and his his imaginary son, Sancho, um, and many of the other main characters are ethnically Indian American. Mm-hmm. You know, and and uh, and it's interesting because 
if you like, the, 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 the central location of American racism is between white people and black people, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. And so the Indian American is in a strange space, mm. you know? Um, and I wanted to explore that space. Mm -hmm. um, I remember when I first came here to live here 20 years ago or so, there were Indian American friends of mine who would say that in a way they felt oddly excused from racism really? in America compared to Britain. They experienced it much more there than here. Uh. You know? uh, but I mean, since 9-11, that's somewhat changed. That now anybody with a kind of brown skin, you know, <laughs> wearing a turban can be seen as a problem. Yeah, surely uh, colorism it yeah. jumps into that yeah. and religion jumps mm -hmm. into that. And mm -hmm. somebody from India who's lighter may experience less. Yes. Somebody who's more clearly visually uh, marked as Indian exactly. will experience perhaps more. Yeah. So, I mean, I kind of went into that a little bit. So there, there are moments, I mean, this, you know, at one level, this is a road novel, you mm -hmm. know, I mean, mm -hmm. I mean, Kishat conceives of this impossible love for this woman he's seen on TV and sets out across America from middle America, where he's been working as a farmer salesman, um, to prove himself worthy of her hand, right? So, I mean, he's nuts, you know? <laughs> <laughs> but, but he's, he's in a kind of noble way nuts, you know? And he wants, to be, he wants to be better, he wants to be worthy, you know? So his journey is not only a physical journey, it's also in a way, a, a, a journey of make, of improving himself. Mm. You know? um, he, he's called, he, he, you named him Sam Duchamp. And yeah. I'm like, is he Marcel Duchamp or well, is it like well, Sam not, Champion? Well, he's got, is a little bit of Sam Duchamp and the Pharaohs in there. You know? Okay. Uh, and Wooly Bully. That's somewhere behind that name. Okay. And Marcel Duchamp as well. So there's a little bit of each. Okay. But what I wanted to do in the book while in a way telling this comic story of this foolish man and his impossible dream you know, uh, was also to take on some of the, the 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 hard stuff, you know. So so that he does in his journey encounter on two or three occasions the novel encounters quite serious moments of, of racial violence and prejudice, you know. And I thought you can't write a novel about America right now at this minute mm -hmm. um, and look away from that. Mm -hmm. You've got to look it in the face. Mm -hmm. you know? So I wanted to do that too. Do you think that um in America, we are in a moment that is shaped by a particular individual, or has America shifted bec to be more Trumpian and this virus, this cancer will continue after he's out of the Oval Office? Well, I, I actually did. I began by thinking that he was more of an effect than a cause. You know, mm -hmm. that, that's, I, I began by thinking that the, the, the rift is there anyway. Yes. You know, the, the rift in the country was there anyway. And he was, he, was a product of that. Yes. But of course he's become, he's extremely skillful at exploiting that mm -hmm. and twisting the knife in that wound and making, and making it, the, the rifts deeper yeah. and, and, and more difficult to heal. Yeah. You know? So I do think that even if he were to evaporate tomorrow, we'd still have a problem. Yes. Yeah. I mean, he, he has definitely made it comfortable to be overtly racist yeah, yeah. and to challenge the yeah. existence of racism. Yeah. And that's not going to just sort of go away it is not. with the democratic president. No. And the strange thing is, you see, that it's, although this novel 
for the most part, takes place in, in America. Some bits of it takes place in, 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 in England and some backstory stuff is in India, but mostly in America. But this problem is in all those three countries. Yeah. You know, that's to say the, the current Indian administration, which has just won a landslide election victory, it is very popular, is very divisive, uh, setting Hindus against Muslims, mm. you know, uh, with very wide acceptance of that happening because he's popular, you know. Uh, the, the, the whole Brexit nonsense in, in, in Britain mm -hmm. is also about disliking foreigners, you know, and, and thinking how much nicer it would be if, if they could return to some fantasy England in which there weren't any unfortunate brown people around, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. and when the, when the country ruled the world. And, of course, ignoring the fact that one of the consequences of the country ruling the world is that they were looting the countries where the brown people came from. Mm. You know, and and that the wealth of England was based on, on that. You know, uh, so these are not exactly the same phenomena, but they're they're linked. They're linked. They're you linked. know, I mean, I, a fear they're, of globalism, a fear of yeah. immigrants. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, I've been an immigrant more or less all my life. Sure. So I'm biased. Sure. <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, I feel like, in some ways, I don't recognize. America. Yeah. And in some ways I'm like, no, no, you do. It was always just right there under the surface. And yeah. now it's just come out. Do you feel like I don't really recognize this place right now? Well, or? I mean, it's to say, it's exactly what you said. I mean, I don't know. You must have been reading as, as I was this 1619 project that yeah. we out the weekend. At times, yeah. And, and I mean, one of the things that writer after writer in that project says is that the flaw in the idea of America was there from the beginning mm -hmm. because it was not an equal society. Mm -hmm. You know, it was it was a society based on a crime. Yeah. You know? And um and in a way, black people fighting for freedom which were fighting to make the country the thing it was supposed to be. Right. You know, which which it wasn't. Right. Um and so yeah, I think in a way, you know, countries have original sins. You know, mm -hmm. I mean the original sin of of Britain is colonialism. Mm -hmm. you know, the original sin of America is slavery. Mm -hmm. you know? mm -hmm. um, and to what extent do we deal with those things as a culture? You know, um, I mean, interestingly, after World War II, the Germans went to through a very serious process of self-examination mm -hmm. uh, in order to deal with the fact of Nazism. You know, and I think the British have never done that about colonialism. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, this country still has a long way to go. Oh, definitely has not done that at all. Has I not mean, think about what South Africa did yeah. in terms of their truth and reconciliation. Exactly. We've done nothing, nothing, nothing of that Nothing at all. of that, exactly. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I've been fortunate that a lot of black American writers have been friends of mine. So I get a lot of my wisdom from them. I, mean, I was lucky that I knew Toni Morrison very well. And, you know, it's a great loss. But, but she had the strength to say... Which was in a way like Ralph Ellison also before. So somebody once asked Ralph Ellison who he was writing for, and he said, "He said, well, I'm writing for what then was called the Negro community, mm -hmm. but also for everybody beyond that that I can reach." Mm -hmm. You know, and I think that Tony would have said the same. Yeah, that, you know, and I think a little bit, but in these days and after her after her death, many many people have talked about her enormous significance 
inside the black community. Oh, my God. Um, but I think what has not been said enough is her enormous significance in world literature. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, the, mm -hmm. the enormous change she made, not just in the black community, but in, 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 the, literature, in the literature of the world. Mm -hmm. you know? and, and I think it's because she used fiction relentlessly to tell the truth. Mm. You know, and and what I that's what I think of what the novel at its best is is a way of telling the truth by by indirect means. You know, mm -hmm. I mean you I mean you're making up these stories, you know. But the purpose of the stories is to say something truthful about human beings, about what we do to each other. Yeah. And and how we are in the world, you know, and, and that's I mean that's what I've learned from writers like that. Do you have a, a Tony story that you can <laughs> Yeah, share I have Tony stories, yeah. I'll tell you the secret of Tony Morrison. The secret of Tony Morrison was two glasses of Sancerre. <laughs> <laughs> now, one of the very first times I met her, I was having lunch with her and, a, and an editor from The New Yorker. And, and, you know, Tony could be quite grand, you know? Yeah. She'd, she'd come in and be grand at you. Yeah, yeah. And she would call you Mr. Rushdie and so on. And... Second glass of white wine, she was giggling. She was telling mischievous stories about people. And she was just the most enjoyable, fun companion you could wish for. Uh -huh. So that's, I always learned that. Every, every time you see Tony, make sure you got a bottle of white wine. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have a favorite book of hers? Yeah. I mean, the first book of hers that I read, which was Song of Solomon. Mm, yes, uh, yes. I yes, think yes. has always remained my favorite. I Me think she's too, yes. kind of, in some way she was loosest and freest in that book, you know, mm -hmm. and, and uh, I just loved it. I mean, after the, I, I read that first and beloved second, and I went back and read the earlier books after that. But it's always, if I had to pick one book for somebody who'd never read Toni Morrison, Song of Solomon. I would say read Song of Solomon. I agree. Yeah. So we live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door. Thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered. One of the people who helped inspire me to want to be in broadcasting is Oprah Winfrey. She's an inspiration for so many of us, but her daytime talk show was so incredible. And it told me that you could be black and authentic and real on TV. And that made me want to do it, too. Black Stories, Black Truths is NPR's new collection that's a celebration of blackness. Each of NPR's black voices are as direct, varied, distinct and nuanced as the black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and how to create world-shifting things out of struggle. Every episode is a living account of what it means to be Black today, told from a unique Black perspective. 
Black perspectives that haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story, but now they are the story. On NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. Hear a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcasts that center Black voices. Turn on NPR today and hear a range of voices as varied, as nuanced, and as Black as we are. Stories should never be about us without us. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get your podcasts. Influencer. It's a word that gets tossed around a lot these days. There is a woman who went the distance, who broke ground as the first true influencer by living a remarkable life. Her name, Elizabeth Taylor. I'm Katy Perry. This is the story of the original influencer. This is Elizabeth the First. Elizabeth the First, the podcast, wherever you listen. Sam Duchamp is a mediocre writer. Yeah. How does a great writer write a mediocre writer? <laughs> well, it's not hard, really. <laughs> <laughs> I bet you're going to tie part of your mind behind your back to write. Well, you know, there was there's bits of me that have always been attracted by by various kinds of B genre fiction, you know. So, I mean, in the novel, the the the, the writer is a uh, he, he's been writing spy fiction, yeah. you know, and and. Um, there's a bit of me that always wanted to write a spy novel. Okay, you know, and and um, this is a, this is my spy novel, if you like. This is as close as I'm going to get. I wrote it through him. Okay, um, and there's a bit of me that always wanted to write science fiction, you know. And this is also like my science fiction novel. Yeah, you know. So, so there are bits of my head that have got B grade writers in there, <laughs> and I just had to access them. I mean, you can do anything you want. Why not just write a spy novel? Well, this is my spy novel. This, this is, this. I think this is it. I mean, there was a moment, you know, of my life, which we don't have to go into too much, when I actually met a lot of spies. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I've been half a dozen times in that James Bond building on the River Thames. Right. You know, right. Um, and I know how what it's like inside. And I've met quite a lot of actually hardcore spies. Both, Amer- I mean, I met three American counterterrorism chiefs and in other countries. So I thought, you know, I really should do this because I know these people now. There it is. And well, I maybe, you know, now you're encouraging me. Maybe, maybe there's, <laughs> maybe there's another spy novel to write. Who knows? <laughs> you know, the world is constantly telling you that you are a great writer. You're one of the best of all time and all this sort of stuff. I wonder what that voice does to you when you actually sit at uh, the the pad. You don't, or, you, don't, you don't hear it because the world tells me other stuff too, which is less <laughs> flattering. <laughs> You don't hear it. Surely you must. The truth is that writing is so difficult to do well that when you're sitting there facing that challenge, you're not thinking about anything anybody else says. You're just thinking about how to make this thing work. You know, and I mean, this book, for example, was, I mean, it was a very, it's a very ambitious book. I mean, it tries to incorporate many different kinds of literature, and it has a very large panoramic sweep. But it, it's trying—it's trying for a lot, you yes. know. And and the trouble about trying for a lot is that if you can pull it off, that's great. 
and if you can't, you fall flat on your face. You sure. know, it's it's like a, it's like high wire with no net. You know, so so you're too absorbed by trying to not fall off the high wire to worry about what people say about you. you know? <laughs> and I know at times in writing a novel, you kind of. I kind of try to see the entire thing mm. at once, mm. which intellectually is very difficult. Very difficult. Right? The, do you get that moment of like, I'm trying to hold it all in yeah. the mind at once to make sure it all fits and works and that just, it's really, yes, really hard. It, it gives you a headache. Yeah, <laughs> no, it's true. But it is also true, I think, that in order to do the thing, you do kind of have to hold a very large amount. It doesn't matter how many notes you make. Right. You know, you have to hold a lot of it in your head because because it's like, it's like the matrix. You know, there's this, incredibly complicated connections between characters and events and places and 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 um you know themes and etc and you've and you've somehow got to balance all that in your head and and see exactly what needs to come next yeah you know and um and actually when you so i have found that like when i finish a book there's this moment when that matrix in your brain disappears mm. you know and it's kind of like having your brain removed <laughs> because you realize that the thing you've been thinking about has occupied almost all your thoughts for the last two, three years. Yes. Suddenly it's not in your head anymore. Mm. And you think, I don't have anything to think about. Mm. So, and it's, it's, it feels, it feels stupid. <laughs> it's stupid. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's take a step back and be a little more granular. How do you write a good sentence? Well, there's a, my favorite answer to that is when Ernest Hemingway was asked this by the Paris Review, and he said the most important thing a writer needs is a really good shit detector. Right. You right. have With to the know. You will hand. You crank. have to know when it's bad. Yes. Because if you don't know when it's bad, you don't know when it's good. Right. You know, so, so the that's the first thing is you have to. It's strange. It's like it's, it's it's schizophrenic because the actual act of writing the sentence comes out of one thing in your head, which is the creative thing. Mm -hmm. You know, um, the act of judging whether the sentence is good or not mm -hmm. comes out of another part of your head, which mm -hmm. is the critical thing. Mm -hmm. And you really have to have both. If if you don't have both, then you can be a little hit and miss as a writer. You know, that some of the sentences are good, some of the sentences shouldn't be there. You know, and and knowing the difference, I think, is is what it's about. I mean, it can be the smallest thing, the you know, the inversion or this word instead of that exactly. word, this exactly. rhythm instead of. Well, I'm very. See, you say rhythm. I, I'm very interested in the music of the line. Mm. You know, and and I mean, I will quite often try and hear the line as spoken. You know, and and sometimes even just cut a word or rearrange words to make the music better. You know, and I think that for me, that issue of rhythm is is very important. That's so much of it yeah. that the reader will hear it in a in a pleasing way. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and then I think the the, the other thing is that, which I've become more and more interested in as I've gone on, is that I think there is a perfect way of telling a story. You oh. know, I mean, for the way that the reader will find it easiest to receive what you're sending, mm -hmm. you know? And that doesn't necessarily mean that you have to go beginning, middle, end. You don't necessarily have to do that. But you have to tell people what they need to know at exactly that moment, mm. you know, um, in order to understand that step and then the next step and so on. And I've become more and more aware of 
how readers will read, you know, and, and trying to give them exactly what they need when they need it. How do you do that? Because the writer has to be able to imagine the reader, yeah. and the reader is many, many people. Exactly. All different. So, yes. Yeah. So mm-hmm. how do you envision, because you have to make sure that they understand mm-hmm. what you're talking about, and you are not them, no. and you're not going to be there to yeah. say, well, you need to understand it this way, and they're, 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 the audience is made up no. of lots of different no, people. No, I think that's and, true. I think in the end, your, your, uh, your reader is you sitting on your shoulder. Right. You know, I think I, I think I have a little me sitting on my on my shoulder, reading what I'm doing, deciding if he likes it or not. You know, and and beyond that, it is impossible, as you say, you can't second guess, because you know there are so many different kinds of people who pick up a book, and and uh, you know, by, I mean, my books are translated a lot, and and uh, who knows uh, what people are making of them. I mean, for some reason, my books are popular in Korea. Okay. Now, I've never been to Korea. I can't read the script. I have no idea why I'm big in Korea. <laughs> but, but thank you very much, Korea. You know? but, you, you, but you have to be thoughtful of what does the reader not know mm. that I do know, yeah. right? And mm. if you're just speaking to your frame of reference, you're yeah. going to lose a lot of people. Yeah, no, but I'm good, I'm good at, at, at making sure that the text contains what, what people need to know. Mm. You know, I don't believe that you should expect your reader to kind of Google stuff. Right. You know, that, right. Um, we want them to stay in your text. You want to, exactly. You don't say, what is this? I have to find, you know, or be irritated by not knowing. Right. Know? So I think it, it is, it's the writer's business to give the reader everything the reader needs for the purposes of the story that he's being told. You know, so that's my business. But I mean, look, in the end, it's instinct. This is all, the, 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 there's no rule. Right. You know, the, 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 I've often thought of it, it's like a, a story tries to hit a particular note. You know, it's like a tuning fork. Ding, you know, it's that. And, and you try and write it in a way that you can hear that it's hitting that note. Mm. You know? What does eating healthy mean to you? Whatever your eating goals, Thrive Market is the best place to get all your groceries and household essentials. And getting Thrive shipped to your door is like having a great supermarket right outside your house. I love that Thrive Market carries brands with the highest quality ingredients and ethical sourcing methods. Whether you're looking for organic kid snacks or low sugar alternatives or gluten-free essentials, Thrive Market's got it and their site lets you curate your shopping experience quickly. And as a Thrive member, I save on every order, usually about 30%, which of course I love. And when you join, you help a family in need with the membership matching program. Join in on the savings with Thrive Market today and get 30% off your first order plus a $60 gift for free. Go to thrivemarket.com slash Toray for 30% off your first order plus that free $60 gift. That's Thrive, T-H-R-I-V-E Market dot com slash Toray. Thrivemarket.com slash Toray. On March 16th, 2000, two sheriff's deputies were shot in Atlanta. Jamil Alamin, a Muslim leader and former black power activist, was convicted. But the evidence was shaky, and the whole truth didn't come out during the trial. My name is Mosi Secret, and when I started investigating this case in my hometown, I uncovered a dark truth about America. From Tinderfoot TV, Campside Media, and iHeart Podcasts, Radical is available now. Listen to the new podcast, Radical, for free on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts.
Mm. And if it's doing that, then you think, okay, this is working. You know, but it, this is, these are all, I mean, this is, this is not real. There's not really a note, you know, et cetera. But, but what I'm saying is that it's a way of talking about an instinctive response and judgment that you can't, there are no, there are no principles for it. There are no rules for it. You know, um, there's just what works. I mean, talk about what works. We talk about good sentences. They don't just exist in a void. No. The sentences must respond to the ones around them. Mm-hmm. And the previous sentence was long, so make this one short. Or yes. the previous sentence did this, so we must change the game a little bit. Mm-hmm. Right? So they, they have to respond to they each do. other. Joseph Heller, you know, who wrote Catch-22, I once heard him speak, and he said that everything he'd ever written began when he wrote down a sentence that he knew would lead to another 200 sentences. Mm. So, um, so you know, Catch-22, the first sentence is something like, it was love at first sight, the moment Yossarian saw the chaplain, he fell in love with him. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and he thought, when he wrote that down, he thought, okay, now I know how to write the book. Right. You know, and and I think that is true of, not necessarily the first sentence, but it, but it is often true of a, a sentence that you stumble on or you find, and it kind of opens up the door into the next 200 sentences. Yes. You say, okay, it goes this way now. Yes. You know? And uh, that's happened to me. I mean, I wish it happened to me more often, <laughs> but, but it's happened to me enough times. Yeah. 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 No, you find that one sentence that, oh, yeah, the door's open. Now exactly. I see where to go. Go this way. Exactly. So a great character. Mm. How do you write a great character? Well, you have to trust other people to tell you that it's a great character. You, you're just trying to write a character that's alive. You know, the, the, the secret is that you should feel the, him or her as a living being. You know? um, and uh, well, I'll tell you one thing that I was told by at college, I, I, where I'd, I'd never studied literature, I studied history. You know? And I had a history professor who said to me this wonderful thing. He said, you should never write history until you can hear the people speak. He said, if you can't hear, the, if you don't know how they speak, he said, you don't know enough about them and you can't tell their story. Now, excellent advice for writing history, but actually very, very good advice for writing fiction. And now, when I'm trying to make a character, one of the things I do always is I ask myself, how does this person speak? Um, do they have an accent? Now, in America, accent will often tell you about region or it'll tell you about race. In Britain, accent will tell you about class, mm-hmm. you know, um, and um, so first, then, then you ask yourself, how big is their vocabulary? Do they use long words? Do they use bad language? Are they talkative or are they silent, you know, et cetera? And so by the time you've answered a lot of questions for yourself about how this character speaks, you actually know quite a lot about the character, you know, you know what sort of person that is. Mm-hmm. And, and so then it begins to come alive. Talk about some of the writers that you've learned the most from. Oh my, long list. Yeah. Um, well, given this novel, of course, one of the one of the big characters, people, is Cervantes because uh, we've said because he of the originality of his work so long ago. But um, I mean, I think Faulkner was big on me for me, you know, um, and I think uh, that the creation of a world which is more than just one book, mm-hmm. you know. Um, uh, to live in that world, I thought that was extraordinary. Um, at a certain point in my life, I was very 
very affected by Joyce. Mm-hmm. James Joyce, yeah. yeah. James Joyce and, and um, Nabokov, you know. Oh, a, lot of these, a lot of these people are in this book. You know, you can't write a road novel about America. <laughs> without Lolita. Without Lolita. Yes. You know, um, and especially about when you're talking about people living in cheap motels yes. across the country, you know. Um, so I was thinking about Lolita a little bit, yes. you know. And um, actually, one of the st- books completely unexpectedly that became very helpful was Robert Persig's book, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. Okay, I remember you know, reading which, that in grade school. Which came out way, way back. And, and yeah. But, well, I'm older than you, so I was <laughs> not in grade school. <laughs> but I looked at it again recently uh, because there was some anniversary. Uh, and, and I thought, okay, well, I'm not, I don't so much care about the Zen or the motorcycle maintenance. <laughs> but what is really interesting is the father-son relationship in this yes. book. It's, it's about a father and a son on a, mot- on a motorbike. You know, riding across America, yes, but also trying to make their relationship better, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. And I was writing a book about, which is about family relationships. It's about fathers and sons, about brothers and sisters, and et cetera. And, and Persig's, sort of more or less autobiographical uh, passages in which he talks about himself and his son, mm-hmm. I thought were very moving, mm-hmm. you know, and, mm-hmm. and, and, and helpful. And, you know, we've said Toni Morrison, but she was a huge influence on me at a certain point. You mm-hmm. know? And I once had the enormous good fortune when she was in, I was still living in England at that time, when she wrote jazz. Uh, she, she came to England and the, she was supposed to be doing this major television interview and the interviewer got sick. Okay. And so the producer of the TV show was sort of panicking, calling his friends. It called me because he knew that I would have read the novel. And he said, well, he said, will you do it? And I thought, you know, I mean, I knew Tony. And I, th- but I thought, but when you have dinner with your friends who are writers, you don't ask each other about your work. Right, right, right. You know, right, you right. kind of fool around. Right. And, and then I thought this would be an excuse for me to ask Tony Morrison everything I've ever wanted to ask Tony Morrison. You know? So I said, yes, I'll do it. And there's this one-hour interview. You can find it in the BBC archives. It's one of the most interesting hours that I ever spent. And one of the things she said, which became very useful to me, was she talked about the relationship between her writing and jazz. Mm-hmm. Um, she, she talked about how... I said, I, said, I said, do you actually use... I said, so much of jazz is improvisational. Um, I said, so is that a technique that you use? And she said, well, I want to make it look like I do that. <laughs> right, um, right. But then at another time, she said that she did think of her writing as being formally like jazz, you know, and, and in the sense that there is, a, there is a kind of architecture, but there's a lot of looseness in the architecture, which you find in the act of playing, mm-hmm, you know. Mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. and my own process as a writer has become more and more and more like that um i mean when i heard her say that i remember thinking at that point in my life i needed a lot of architecture i needed to really have worked it out you know Mm. before i could start writing it and then listening to her i thought you know there's something to that i'm gonna play i'm gonna try that yeah and ever since then it's become more and more and more I think true of the way that I write, I, yeah. I, to discover things in the act of writing them, you know, and then be a very good critic. Yeah. Then to say I don't like this, I cut it out, you know. Um, but that act of dis- thinking of writing as an act of discovery um, has become more and more the way I think. 
What about Ellison, Ralph Ellison? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, there's a problem of writers who only have one book. But I mean, I thought, I thought Invisible Man is a colossal book. Yes. Uh, and, and some of his essays I really like. Well, the, the posthumous novel as well, which is... Yes, I know, but whatever, finished, that, whatever but, that is. Yeah. I mean, I have a, one reason I have a soft spot for, the, for Juneteenth is that that's my birthday. Okay, okay. I was born on June the 19th. Okay. And I quite like it that Juneteenth is Juneteenth. Okay. And that there's a Ralph Ellison novel with that name. Okay. But it's impossible to know if that's the book that Ellison wanted, of us, wanted us to read. Of there was a short story of his I loved, which was published in the long defunct magazine, American Review. He has a story called Cadillac Flambe. I love that story. A wonderful story. Oh, it's so beautiful. Uh, yeah. Um, and, and I mean, Invisible Man is just a, it's a, it's a great book. Yeah. Um, and, and Baldwin, you know, there's a lot of Baldwin that, that I, there were periods of my life when I would intensively read Baldwin, you know, and I came very close to meeting him and then chickened out. Oh, why? I was, I was a kid. I had never published anything. And I was in St. Paul de Vence where, and he had recently moved there. I was in the some little bistro and they were, and I said, I said, is it true that James Baldwin lives here? And they said, oh. L'écrivain américain, the American writer. You know? <laughs> and they said, yeah, he's just down there, just down there, you know. And um, I thought, my God, James Baldwin lives just down there. And I actually went to the house, and then I didn't have the courage to ring the doorbell. <laughs> 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 I thought, you know, I'm nobody. I've never published a book. Why should I bother him? So you know? close. So close. So close. So I was on the opposite side of the door from James Baldwin. <laughs> you wrote that Paul Simon's Graceland, the song, mm. had an impact on this book. How? Well, there's a character in it nicknamed the Human Trampoline, so that's so that's one that's one reason why. Um, but also because I heard him talk about the origins of that song. Well, he said that you know he came back from Africa with all this music that was and it was supposed to be an African album. Yes, and. And he said he, there was this one bit of music where he didn't like anything except he liked the bass line. So he said, I'm going to keep the bass line. And then he wrote, as people often do, he wrote nonsense lyrics just to give him the rhythm of the lyrics. Right. And the nonsense lyrics were, I'm going to Graceland, I'm going to Graceland. And he thought, well, obviously those aren't the lyrics because I'm writing an album about Africa. <laughs> and then he said somehow the lyrics got stuck to the song. And he realized that he... He, he said, I better go to Graceland. <laughs> He'd never been. Right. So then he went to Graceland and became the song. And so it, it's very, it was very beautifully told because it shows you how work can, can stick in your brain in a way that's completely unexpected. You know, that, that isn't what you were trying to do. Yeah. You know, but here it is. And now you've got to make sense of it. So I thought that was actually very useful advice. You know, sometimes... Sometimes don't force the book to go in the direction you thought it was going. Mm. But, but you see what actually is happening and you go with that. And go with it. You go with that, you know, so. And then it becomes its own thing that's sort of dragging you rather than you creating it. Absolutely. I mean, I think what somebody said, I can't remember who, but I think it's quite truthful that the book you finish is never the book you begin. Right. You know, uh, right. the act of writing the book tells you what is the book you're writing. Right. You know? Right. Um, right. I think it was... 
So when you say you're talking about it, like I write the book to find out what it is. Yes, well, exactly. Yeah. And I think that's more that that has more and more and more and more become the way I think about it. Can you talk about your your process? Do you handwrite or you're no, the computer? I don't handwrite. Um, the the problem with me is that when it's in my handwriting, I can't judge it. Mm. I don't know if it's good or bad. You know, so, and sometimes I think it's better than it is. Okay. And sometimes I think it's worse than it is. But okay. I can't be objective about it. You're objective on the computer? Yes. The moment it's in something like, like type, which used to be back in the day a typewriter. Yeah. Uh, the moment it's in something not my handwriting, then I can then look at it very skeptically and do what it needs. You know? But in my handwriting, the handwriting confuses me. With the printed, the typed out words, yeah. is it different for you on the computer than on a page? Yes. Yes. Right? Yes. It's amazing, yes. right? I'll notice things on the page yes, that exactly. I saw this 20 times on the computer. I never noticed never that that exactly. was wrong. And now no. I see it on the page. It's I think wrong. you have to do both. Yeah. I think, I mean, so, so what I do is I print out all the time. Right. And, and then, uh, you know, I see what I see on the screen and then I read it and then I scribble all over it. Right. And then I put that back into the computer. And, right. And so, but I think you, I think you have to do both because you do see different things. Yeah. Are you a morning writer? No, I'm not writer? an early morning writer. I mean, I tried to be, and it was all, I just always threw it away. No, I do it like an office job. You know, I do like a nine to five kind of thing. Really? So, yeah. I mean, not as long as that, to be truthful. <laughs> <laughs> what, is, what is your, what do you, you do? Well, it depends where I am in the book. You know, I mean, for, first, the first time through is slow and painful. Right. You know, and you do three hours a day, you're usually finished. You, your brain's turned to jelly, you know. Um, but in the final stages of a book, when I'm basically going over it, I can work incredibly long hours. I can work like 15, 16 hours. Yeah. Collapse. Editing it. Yeah. yeah. Just making it what it should, making it what it needs to be in order to leave my desk. Yeah. You know, and, and then there's a moment when I find that I'm not really making it better, I'm just making it different. Right, right. You know, right. And, and that's what I call finishing. Right, right, you know, right. And, and at that point, I become very interested in what other people have to say. Mm. You know, until then, I can't show it. I, can't, I don't show my editor. I don't show my agent. I don't show anybody. Um, but when I've reached, uh, the reason I don't do it is because I think a work in progress is very vulnerable. Yeah. You know, if I write a scene and I show it to you and like you don't laugh in the right place, you know, I feel my confidence in it is shaken, mm. you know, and, and so what I do is I hug it to myself until I reach the point where I'm not embarrassed to show it to you. Mm. Embarrassment is an infallible test. Mm. If you're embarrassed to show somebody something, it isn't finished. You're not ready. If you're embarrassed, but when you show it, you feel full confidence? No, but I feel confident enough that the work will explain itself. Mm. And then, yes, I mean, I have a brilliant editor, Susan Camel at Random House, and, and I'm very interested in what she has to say. Yeah. And in this book, I mean, she came over to my place and sat with me for six hours going through the manuscript. And I mean, I'm not saying I did everything she suggested, but everything she's, <laughs> but, but everything she suggested was worth seriously thinking about. Sure. You know, and, and it, that there's a point where you need other eyes yes. on, on the text, Yes. you know, and, but for me, that only comes when I feel I'm not making it better anymore. Right. I feel like I get obsessed with the text and I just want to just live in it and mm. luxuriate in it mm. and just do nothing else mm. all day long and just 
look at it and pick at it and what could be added and what could be taken away. Mm -hmm. And I'll be 10 a.m., 2 a.m., just like in it, in it, Well, it never leaves your head, that's for sure. Yes, Mm. yes. Can you you go out and see, have dinner with friends when you're writing? Well, no, because I would be too guilty. (laughs) I could go play tennis, but I can't. But if to just go and sit and talk with people, I'm like, but I could be working. (laughs) Well, you see that I'm different from you because my feeling is that I reached, when I reached the end of a, working day i'm actually not only mentally but physically exhausted mm-hmm. you know, and and i very often have a nap you know i just need to just for half an hour or something i need to shut down yeah and and then i find if i can see friends or if i can go see a movie or whatever it's actually helpful to me to unplug it, to unplug and to not just be in my own head to be listening to other people and I find it refreshing, mm. you know. And then when I get up the next day, I'm ready again. I mean, when I when I was working on fiction, that talking to other people would distract me because yeah. I'm in this weird world that I've created, mm-hmm. and you're not in it yet. Yeah, yeah. But when I'm working on nonfiction, I can you bounce can, the yes. ideas oh, off true. of you. Well, there, I mean, I know lots of writers, uh, fiction writers, who who feel exactly as you do that that they need to withdraw yes. somewhat when they're I'm I'm not like that for some reason I mean I I find as I say I find the kind of uh, I'm not saying every night but I'm saying if I see friends of mine I do think it's it's refreshing you're an extrovert uh, ish you, you think ish <laughs> well you seem to be I mean so many writers are like you know they leave their whole game at the typewriter oh, yeah. and they're 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 worthless at dinner but you're think, you're quite fun to have at dinner Thank you. <laughs> Let's do it again. <laughs> I wonder what you do with the rest of your day. If you work three hours, take a nap. There's, you know. I mean, I read things, you know. I sometimes perform the unusual activity known as thinking. <laughs> <laughs> That's fun. Yeah. And. Um, and then I go back to it, you know, I, mean, I, I can do a few hours and then I can take a break and then I can go back and do a little bit more and et cetera. But essentially I'm doing it all the time, even when I'm not doing it. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, you start to sort of, I feel like I'm juggling, you know, three, four, five ideas that I want to get in a yeah. sentence, an idea, mm-hmm. a character, a theme, whatever. Mm-hmm. So I'm juggling this stuff while I'm writing this sentence and like, I, I, I can't stop because the balls are yeah. in the air. Well, what I feel is more and more again, that the, the, if I can make these characters uh, vivid, you know, if they seem to have life, then I think of it as more, almost more like I'm listening to them. Mm. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to think here, what do you need today? You know, um, or which of you needs to be in the front today and who needs to be in the back, mm. you know? And, and it's, it's, it's not so much telling them what to do, as trying to find out what they require mm. in order to be themselves and in order to be the people they need to be in the story. Are you the god of their world? I mean, I'm an atheist, man. <laughs> <laughs> but for them... Yeah, for them. I think they're all atheists too. <laughs> <laughs> I once got into real trouble. I was on a radio show with Maya Angelou, uh, long time ago in, in London and, and uh, 
And I started talking, first, I don't know why, I started talking about not, not being religious. And Maya, sitting at the end of the table, sort of, sort of got up and said, you lucky you're sitting on that side of the table. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, my God, in America, atheism is like I know, I know. worse you than you, like being Paris Hilton. It's I know, like you, can't, you, you can't be elected dog catcher in America no. unless you go to church. Yeah, something. So, something. At least pay lip service lip to something. Service. Yeah, well, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> What's the difference between being a good writer and being a great writer? I don't know. I mean, I don't know about great. You know, I think great is a decision that that history makes about you. Mm -hmm. You know, and I mean, at at the time of Shakespeare, he was like the most commercially popular playwright of his time. Right. But kind of Ben Jonson got better reviews. And and now, of course, Shakespeare is Shakespeare. But, right. it, but it took a couple of hundred years for him to become Shakespeare. Right, right, you know? right. So, so I think the question of greatness is something which the, which the future decides. You know? uh, there are one or two writers who were very, very convinced of their greatness. Uh, one of them was James Joyce. He was really certain of it. And Faulkner, actually, there's a, there's a wonderful story about Faulkner where after As I Lay Dying came out, somebody, I forget who, accused him of having plagiarized the technique of As I Lay Dying, where there are these multiple narrators, having plagiarized it from some other book, long forgotten book. And Faulkner has this wonderful passage, which I'm going to misquote now, but he said, he said, when I am in the throes of my genius, <laughs> he said, essentially, he said, I take whatever I need from wherever I can find it. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. I don't know any writer who would do differently, mm -hmm. which he's right about. Mm -hmm. But I don't think many writers other than Faulkner would have referred to the throes of their genius. <laughs> <laughs> you talk about when those days when you're doing like three hours, you make me think about, uh, I believe it was, it was Joyce who talked about like, you know, yeah, I was working all day, and I worked on one sentence, and mm. you know, they're like, oh my God, slow day. Like, no, it was amazing. Good day, Flaubert. Yeah, is, uh, is, is it like I, that? Like it might be just one sentence no, for No, I'm not hours? as bad as that. Flaubert did that. Uh, he, he would come down having worked all day, and he would say, great day, I wrote a sentence. Yeah. You know, um, and that, so it took him five years to write a book, but then the book ends up being Madame Bovary, so maybe he was Worthy. right. Yeah, you know, so, yeah. Um, I, I mean, I don't, again, when I, started out i was i used to write much more in a day yeah but it required an enormous amount more revision um so it was much more imprecise so now you go more slowly now i go more slowly but the work is doesn't require so much reworking mm -hmm. i'm not saying it requires none of course it, but but it's closer to being where i want it to be the first time the first time but there's much less in a day mm. i mean if i can write Three, four hundred words a day. I think I'm doing pretty well. Really? Yeah. How do you write a book in two years, three hundred words a day? Yeah, a little, a little faster well, you, than that. Well, no, you you just work. <laughs> <laughs> do you still dream of being an actor? Yeah, but it's very much in the area of I dream of being an actor. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I've had odd little offers which I've accepted. So I had a little cameo in Bridget Jones's diary and I had a mm -hmm. little cameo on Curb Your Enthusiasm. And I was once in a movie directed by and starring Helen Hunt in which I played her gynecologist. Okay. So I have been Helen Hunt's gynecologist. Okay. Um, and I had to do method acting. I had to go to a real gynecologist's office and learn how to work ultrasound machinery and things. So if you, you know, if you know anybody who needs an ultrasound, I'm your man. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> but I, I always wanted to act, and I think it's just not going to happen. Tell me about uh, the the curb your enthusiasm experience because that's a unique show. We talk about improvising yeah. within a structure and yes, just very. I mean, it's scary because there's no script. There's literally no script. Um, I mean, it's guided to the extent that that they'll say we've got this scene and and this is what we'd like to happen in the scene. We need to get from this point to this point. But how you get from this point to that point is up to you. Right. You know, so, and I thought, well, these people do it for a living. These people are brilliant improvisational comedians, you know. And I was scared of being the only person on Curb Your Enthusiasm who's no good. Mm. You know? But then I thought, you know, the reason I wasn't scared to do it in a way was that I realized that, I mean, I've done quite a lot of television in my time, and all of it has been unscripted. Right. You know, right. I mean, I've, I've, I've right. done endless conversations and right. interviews and discussions and this and that. It's never been a script. Right. So actually, I'm perfectly comfortable with the unscripted. And I think that's why I got away with it, I think. What was the beginning and end with the scene that you did with Larry? Well, there were two scenes I did. One, the first scene was where he comes to visit me because he's scared because somebody's declared a fatwa on him. <laughs> <laughs> and he's, you know, he's wearing a wig, right. I mean, a disgusting wig. Right. And, he's, and he's not going out. And, right. you know. and so, I, so the first scene is one where I tell him not to be scared. Okay. And by the end of the scene, we go out to lunch. Okay. So that's the first scene. And the second scene is having lunch in the restaurant where I'm trying to cheer him up by telling him that now that he's a man of danger, like girls will like him. Okay. <laughs> and he's cheer that does cheer him up. And then at another table in the, in the restaurant, there's Elizabeth Maggs and she sends over a glass, a drink for him. And he says, is it working? I said, yeah, I, look at that. It's working. Go talk to her. So that he goes off to talk to her. That's my contribution to curb your enthusiasm i mean were you told tell him that this will make him uh, better with women or yes i mean th there was a sort of joke that we talked about that we might do uh, but exactly how you make it work it's it's up to you and then the what is scary is that you do a, a take which they like and they say okay well we got that you like that now do it a different way <laughs> You're like, I, I already did the best think, that I could. I did, yeah. You think, different way? <laughs> so anyway, it was, they're, they're very, very good at making, they were very, very good at making me feel comfortable and relaxed and so on. And so it was just the most enjoyable two days. Yeah. So I want to make you a little uncomfortable yeah. because I have no doubt that you're going to get the Nobel Prize one day. Yeah. And I know that you, you probably don't want to talk about it, which is why I want to talk about it. Okay. Do, does it occur to you? Do you think about it? I mean, you know, the, I would be lying if I said it never occurred to me, but I don't think about it very much. Because, you know, the world is full of wonderful and deserving writers. And only one per year gets that thing. Yeah. Um, and so there's many, many more candidates Sure. Worthy candidates than will ever actually receive it. Of course. You know, and I mean, I remember years ago when I was just starting out, a newspaper asked me to write an article about all the great writers who did not win the Nobel Prize. You know, and, lots of thoughts. And in the end, I, I did never wrote the article, but I did do the research. And it is an amazing, when the Nobel Prize started, Tolstoy was alive. Mm -hmm. And the first Russian to win the Nobel Prize was Ivan Bunin. Mm -hmm. who but they so the people who didn't get it start with Tolstoy Tolstoy 
Ibsen, Strindberg, Chekhov, Joyce, Proust, Kafka, Nabokov, Borges. Kafka's not fair. Kafka's not fair because posthumous writing. Right. Yeah, but all the rest of it's fair. Of course. Right, of course. You know? of course. And then, of course, an enormous shortage of women winners. Of course. Um, and so I thought, well, if, that's, if those are the people who didn't win, you know, I'm happy to be in that club. Of course. Of so, course. So, but you'd, you'd love to be... Well, it's a million dollars. That's all right. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be nice. Yeah. But, you know, Borges used to say that, that he said, you say the Nobel Academy makes a habit of not giving me the Nobel Prize every October. <laughs> <laughs> so I think in the end, you have to just treat it like that. It's all like all prizes, you know, they're very nice when you win. Yeah. And they kind of don't matter when you don't. Right. So. God, you know, my, my, I used to go to uh, read to my son's class in school. And I thought when they got to the fourth grade, I would read this little Borges story and they would get it uh-huh. and they would find it fun. Yeah. And they seemed to hang on my every word. And when they finished, uh, this girl raised her hand. She's like, that was great. What was it about? <laughs> I don't think Borges is for kids. No, no, it's a terrible decision, but he is extraordinary. Great, great writer. And and one of the writers that I read when I was young, when I was still at university, who had a, a just explosive effect on me, but he's exactly the wrong kind of writer for me to use as a model because I don't write like that. That's not my character. It's not my personality. The mm. very cerebral, philosophical, playful texts, which I love, but I started out trying to write like Borges and it was absolute garbage. Mm, yeah, and, yeah. And I just had to realize that's not the kind of writer I am. Right. You know, sometimes you love writers and realize that that's absolutely not the dis- direction you should go in. Yeah. Because your gift, whatever it is, does not lie in that direction. So you've had so much success with your writing. What is your superpower? What are you doing what do you what do you have in you that you're doing so well? You know, I think the answer is a lot of the answer is hard work. I mean, it's just being in the habit of work, you know, so that even when I'm not writing a book, I'm kind of writing a book. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm still thinking about the business of writing and what might be next and so on. And then I mean, a novel is the marathon. You know, the novel the, the novel takes a lot you can't do it quickly. Right. You know, um, and or if you do it quickly, you probably don't do it that well. Right. You know. Um, so I think it's the it's the gift of the marathon runner. You know. Uh, I mean, uh, if the short story is the sprint, the novel is the marathon. You mm-hmm. know. And it's that thing about what does it take to run twenty six and a bit miles? You know, and how you have to you have to chip away little bits of it, and you have to tell yourself stories all the way to get yourself through. You know all. So, I mean, that's, I think, the, the novelist's talent is the talent of the marathon runner. Mm-hmm, you know? mm-hmm. And I think that's, for some reason, I mean, I'm the least athletic human being you'll ever meet. <laughs> um, but in my work, I run marathons for a living.
Thanks to Salman for a great interview. And thanks to you for listening. Torre Show gives you fuel to power your dreams because you can use your dreams like a rocket ship to blast you into a life you never imagined. You can make your dreams a reality and this show can help. I'm on Twitter at Torre and on Instagram at Torre Show. Please leave a review on iTunes. It really helps. And tell your friends about the show. Torre Show is written by me, Torre, and produced by Jackie Garofano. Our photographers are Chuck Marcus and Shanta Covington, and we're distributed by DCP Entertainment. And we will no doubt be back next Wednesday with another amazing person because the man can't shut us down. We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered.